Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Welcome everybody back to the Poker Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi and I'm here with Femi Fashikin, an Orlando-based Nigerian-born poker player and tech entrepreneur who won over $1 million at the largest poker tournament of all time, the World Series of Poker Big 50. Over 28,000 players entered the massive, nearly one-week event and Femi prevailed with a strong and composed final table performance. The name Femi means love me, but I can tell from our brief interactions on Twitter that he really loves the game of poker and even had dozens of caches on Hended Mob before his epic score. Today on the grid, he takes us through a pivotal day four hand with King Nine offsuit. Welcome to the grid, Femi. Hey, thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about this um, really pivotal hand. This happened on day four, right? Can you give us a sense of where that was in the Big 50? Yeah, so this was day four. Um, it was eight-ended, and um, it was pretty late. I'd say 1 a.m. I was maybe at about 20 big blinds. I was like sixth in position. Uh, so that means uh, we had two other shorter stacks. The ICM for the pay jump was going to be about 50000 Obviously, that's uh, a significant amount for me. And uh, my open on the button with... King of Spade, Nine of Clubs, and uh, folds to the big line. An older gentleman, whom I presume should be the tightest on the table, uh, flats. Uh, my, by the way, I opened 2.2, so like 14 million. Uh, I had an effective stack of uh, 120 million at that point. So the flop came, and it was a Nine of Spade, Nine of Hearts, and Six of Spades. Pretty good flop for me, so I had to make a decision to bet, see bet or not. Um, obviously, I wanted to keep whatever hand he had in the game, so basically I can get some more value down the line. So, But I decided to just uh, main bet or downsize my bet, so I bet about less than a third of the pot. And then he decided to check raise, so basically... I bet 10 million and he raises to 25 million. But I also know that, you know, he seems to be a tighter player from the lead two I've seen about him. So at this point, I'm always going to flat there because if he's bluffing, um, I wanted to keep his hand, I wanted to keep it in, in. And um, I called the flop and the turn uh, was a jack of hearts. So now we have nine of spades, nine of a heart, six of spades, jack of heart. So there's two flush draws on the board. And to my surprise, he decides to check. So at this point, I'm saying, okay, maybe he has 
some kind of pairs, pocket sevens, maybe has uh, some kind of a six and a kicker like ace, king six, so many hands it could have in that range, or maybe even a weekend nine. But I think a weekend nine would probably bet the turn. So I bet like close to half a pot, 40, 40 million. And then to my surprise, he shoves all in. So <laughs> at this point, I played my strategy throughout the old day was to just stay alive in the game. I knew there were times that, you know, you might get to a big moment that might have to like fold a big hand. But so I started constructing my ra- his range and then trying to analyze what hands he could have in that point. Could he have like a, a jack nine? And now, you know, he decides to check the turn. Does he have pocket sixes? Also, this is basically his, um, his image was super tight. So I needed to uh, just make sure I, I gave him all the credit, right? So that it wasn't bluffing too much in this spot. Considering that he actually was fifth in stack size. So he only had like, I think he started the hand with like 24, 24 big blinds. So not too much far from me. And um, after a lot of deliberation and um, I guess like a minute or two, I made the call and I was way ahead. He shows um, King Jack and he turned the Jack and the river came out as a, as a four of diamonds, which is a blank. And um, I doubled up and became like, I think, second in cheap, cheap lead. And uh, a few hands after that, I just played more aggressive and backed uh, the cheap lead for the night. Wow, what a pivotal hand for you as, of course, you went on to win the tournament the next day. I mean, this yeah. seems like a really tough situation in that it's one in the morning and you've probably been playing these really long days for how long now? It was four days and we've been playing at this point, I'll say over 10 hours or so. And, you know, the fatigue was setting in. On the surface, it does look like, okay, a king nine there should be a standard call. But um, I wasn't playing standard. I wasn't trying to just, you know, play for Eevee. You know, as, a, as you could tell, first place gets $1 million. And I don't play eye rollers. I don't play, you know, too many tournaments that first place would get that high. So I wanted to make my decisions based on just more of um situational. Like, you know, I wasn't just playing the same way I'll play like any random tournament and I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, my range is, you know, way ahead here and I should always make it, make an instant call. So I, I was a little more deliberate than I would, I, I should be, you know, with given that my holding was pretty strong itself. So yeah, it was a very tough uh, moment, but, um, you know, it was a good feeling making the call and obviously I was uh, way ahead. It seemed like he played pretty solid all to that point. Not that his bluff was bad, but just the point that, you know, the ICM and the risk he's also going to take by making that kind of big bluff on the flop there. So, I mean, I don't hate it that much. He probably has a lot of other hands that he could do the same play with that have a chance to really make a very strong hand on the turn, like various spade and straight combos. Yeah, I actually love his bluff, actually, because if you think about it, there's so many holdings that I'll have there that are folded on the flop. Because most people were just trying to like play a little bit more cautious and, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I kind of like the play on the flop because even if even if there are a lot of better hands to bluff with, if your opponent's massively overfolding because you have a tight image and ICM, then why not 
drag, you know, deeper into the barrel and pick out some bluffs that you might normally just check call with, you know? I, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, lo I love it. I think it's a great, um, it seems like a really good exploitative play. All my openings was just two, uh, two big blinds and my three bets were just like uh, 2.5. So they're about, you know, when you have a really big ant, you want to like give them a price to call. And when, you know, you're bluffing to, you want to get away with the cheapest. Nobody was four betting besides with the nuts and this at this point in time everyone was playing for icm there was actually though there was like i think one particular player i don't think he really cared about icm he was just like playing pretty wild yeah i remember but, that uh, player because i watched a yeah. little bit of the broadcast on poker go last night with right them. right and he gave me a hard time too and that's kind of what later on after like the second break i kind of got information from my friends I was playing, then I kind of had to adjust. I was already in trouble then, but um, at least it still panned out somehow. <laughs> so this hand, Jeff, yeah, the flop seems great. And then when he um, double check raises all in on the turn, you, you know, you got to wonder how much fold equity does he really have there because you have so much in the middle, right? Exactly. Seems like it's a creative play and like really awesome that he has it in his arsenal, but maybe not that likely to work out in this specific situation, right? For me... If I played this hand, if I were him, on the turn, I would pretty much just call. And then Riva will try to decide if that's me, if I wasn't capable of turning my hand into a bluff. And what kind of hand would I call the flop with, bet the turn, and now maybe jam the river with, you know, with that. Because the king jack at that point has to almost, has to fold on the river. So I would I don't like his um check um shove on the turn because he's turning a hand that actually could be ahead into I guess a bluff. If he's trying to get value, he wouldn't just jam right there because basically my I wouldn't I would fold most of my hand. So but the way I see it is that the, the check on the the check shove on the river, he was convinced that it was ahead. I think that's why he did that. Yeah, yeah, he was more doing it for value and, you know, trying to make you be priced in with your various draws, as I think you probably would have been. But you, certainly a fascinating hand history is it goes to show when people are playing for such a long time for such high stakes, um, sometimes it can make them do weird things, whether it's overly tight things or just kind of like get hyper aggressive and try out a line that they haven't tried very recently or very often, even though it's such a high stakes situation. Now, how was your composure? When I saw the final table, which my good friend and previous grid guest, Jamie, um, called, it seemed like you were really composed and focused. Um, but, <laughs> but this was the day before in the middle of the night. Yeah. How are you feeling right now? So let me back up a little bit. And this was actually interesting because um, getting to the final, I think, nine of us, I I think I was close to the chip leader. So I played with this guy called Rafi. Even though Rafi adjusted his game on day five, and I didn't know this, but um, on day eight, and I played with him earlier, he seemed to be a little bit of um, aggressive and on the wilder side. I played a few hands with him that I'd lost, you know, some good parts there. I had him in mind that, okay, this guy wants to make a lot of moves and maybe there was a hand I check raised, I called and, you know, floated him. I probably had overs and then turn. I think it bet again. I think I called in the river. I think he maybe bet very big and I decided to fold. At this point now, my, my composure was different. My morale was kind of 
a little bit maybe uh, bruised since I was just I just lost lost a massive cheap stack, um, maybe about fifteen big blinds up to that point. So when this hand happened, I was already on a downswing, and now it was kind of a situation whereby you know I was gonna go from like second in cheap stack to like bust. I mean, regardless of how good the hand that I busted with was, which in this case I was super strong. Um, say this gentleman had like ace nine, which, you know, you could obviously have and all will say, oh, it was a cooler and there was nothing you could do there. Right. And then I was going to go home and <laughs> move on with saying, oh, you know, I almost had a good shot. Right. You know, all through the tournament, I try to minimize my variance, especially when I realized that I had a massive stack most of the time. It was very obvious that I could just play more strategically instead of just playing my normal the game theory you know like standard plays i was optimal for just playing aggressive pre-flop and when i when they show resistance i'll just kind of you know give it up regardless things like that and when i have uh, value hands then i'll get paid later on you would prefer to take a, a wildly profitable pre-flop spot because people are playing so tight rather than like exactly. a, a three barrel bluff where you're trying to get the guy to fold top pair you know, like as I was playing, you know, I had massive stack and um, it was funny because uh, I saw a guy I played with and it was like, oh, you were playing so tight. And, you know, I was just laughing in my mind, like, because <laughs> I mean, he had no idea what I was doing. And because most of the hands I played there, you know, I was playing pre-flop very aggressively. At this point, there was already a lot of uh, pay jumps along the way. Right. And so most people were trying to make the next pay jump or survive somehow so it was highly profitable and then in the occasion a few events where i got somebody like to invite three bet and a four bet they're not doing it light they're like super strong that strategy seemed to help me a lot and at this point now i lost control of everything because i was on a down you know down swing and then this hand happened and uh at the moment there i was just you know flashing back and thinking i have a great hand but if it's a cooler spot, it's unfortunate as, you know, the story hands that way, right? I finish eighth and that's it. It doesn't matter what hand I finished with, right? You wanted to take your time ending the story, right? Exactly. <laughs> What's your perspective on this question about the poker dream? As people are often talking about how recreational players, now you, of course, are a very serious recreational player. You do have other work, but you take poker very seriously, I can tell. Um, but is a poker dream alive for the non-professional? And does your victory um, inform that question at all? Uh, that's a good question. So at this point, uh, I would say I was more like become more like a reg. My opinion about the poker dream, I, I don't know if I particularly like the phrase poker dream. It's something that it's a very, it's a continuous effort, right? It's not just that you you suddenly arrived at the dream, right? Because, you know, you put countless hours in your game and you study and you get a lot of disappointment and you get some modest results. Um, prior to this tournament, I'd played in a lot of other tournaments, I think the year before, and I had some close ones, you know, like uh, the WPT before that, I finished like, I think, 40, 40th. And I played a bunch of tournaments in Hard Rock where first place gets like 250k. And I'm cheap leader and it's only three tables left or four tables and something happens, coolers, and I go bust. And, you know, as a poker player, like, 
you you can't go around telling everybody like, oh, I almost did this. I almost won 200K. I almost did this. But you carry that, you know, within you, right? And and leading up to the moment where you now get your final big break. I think I like the idea of every poker player thinking about a big break, right? Because what's a big break? It's just any good score that now gives you more um, bankroll to now buy into more tournaments and then to play more to actually give yourself a better chance, right? And I think that's the key part of it. When you think about it as a, this poker dream, uh, this dream, right? Everyone is never going to get close to that dream, right? But I think it's just a matter of being um, methodical about it. Like, you know, it's, a, it's like a, you treat it like any business, right? You have a bankroll. You try to play as many tournaments that you can play that will give you the return of your investment. And then, you know, you constantly scale up your buy-ins and then you keep growing and then you give yourself more opportunities. You don't always have to win first place. You don't always have to, you know, as long as you keep cashing and you're running deeper and maybe, so hypothetically, let's say this tournament only paid me 250K. Maybe I finished fifth or sixth. At this point, I'll still be very grateful because now what that means is I can say, I'm going to put 100K into bankroll, right? Into my bankroll. That means I can play more main events. I can play more, you know, tournaments. I can travel more. And that 100K, eventually I could turn it around into like 500K, maybe after a while, right? And turning 500K doesn't mean that, you know, it just means, you know, maybe after the 100K, I win something along the way. I like to think about it more from that standpoint because it's kind of slightly dangerous for, you know, aspiring poker players to think they can just jump in and play. And then all of a sudden, it's going to happen to fewer people, right? I mean, I know it sounds like, you these days you get a lot of million dollar tournaments, but it's still kind of relatively small percentage of, of the poker players that's gonna win that. So I'm not by any means discouraging the idea. I'm just trying to say that there's a more logical path to making that millions as opposed to one big tournament that gives you a massive score. Of course you have to be both skillful and fortunate to win a twenty eight thousand player tournament. On one buy-in, you played, you bought in for, I believe, one $500 buy-in to win this. As many people would buy in until their eyes bled. That was what I think is so cool that you um, did it on one buy-in. And that is some of the criticism people have now towards the re-entry system that for so many tournaments is getting longer and longer, which makes it more likely that the professionals will win. No, it's true. I mean, you know, like... The recent one, Alex Fox in button five times, right? You know, he's an amazing player, but, you know, five times gives you a better chance, right? I mean, I actually played in that tournament too. I, I did buy in two times. But, you know, of course, you know, I mean, I try to give myself a chance by buying again. But the point is, you know, this guy is super skilled and now, you know, they can rebind. But for me, I really don't have anything against it because I think every player is going to do what's best in their interest. Um, and I also think that it's a mistake to try to cap all tournament binds at maybe just no re-entry. Um, I think there should be the way it works right now that some tournaments uh, freeze out and some there's re-entry. Uh, it's perfect. If you don't really like the re-entry, don't play. I love it. I totally agree with you. I think a mix. Yeah, I love re-entry because it bloats out the prize pool. 
And uh, if there was no re-entry, the Big 50 wouldn't have gone up to that point. And they actually spent a, uh, were able to pay a lot of people, right? Because if you think about it, the first place in the Big 50, the, the price pool was $13.4 million, And, you know, first place gets $1.14. So there was enough room to pay so many people and good return of investment for anyone else to that put just 500 bucks in and cat mean cash you know 1100 and up upwards so for me i it was just very fortunate that i bought it once and had a situation um when i was playing pretty solid and uh i got like kind of sucked out on on the river there was just a situation that this was day one i played one c i think and i lost i almost lost my composure i was like okay screw it i'm just gonna play like a madman or something and i looked at the lines i was like the line was sick i was like there's no way i'm gonna get in on that line so i decided to adjust my game and just uh grind in my short stack and the rest is history it is and speaking of dreams i mean not only was this poker dream that i know you don't like that phrase but was realized even if it's not yes. your dream of so many people um, but there's also this intersection of the American dream as you spent half of your life in Nigeria. Um, just about half, right? You came here for university, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So you spent your childhood and your adolescent, early adulthood in Nigeria, moved to the United States and ended up winning this incredible poker tournament 18 years later after moving here. Um, how do you feel about that part of your story that you also became an American citizen achieving a dream that a lot of other people have as well. Yeah, I think it's it's amazing. You know, I, I've been really fortunate to have had that opportunity, um, being able to go to school here, uh, pick up a profession that I love to do. And then finally, uh, along the way, I'm able to accomplish uh, the poker dream, right? The American dream. I think um, that's uh, very huge and uh, it's something that um, I'll forever be grateful for. Everyone should aspire to get some kind of a, a dream of their own. And I think uh, this just happens to be a good one for me. Do you still have family and friends in Nigeria and do you visit often? How did they perceive your victory? Yeah, that's interesting. Right? Uh, yeah, I do have and they don't understand. They think it's just like a, a lottery that I won. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, people are excited that I won, but it's almost to them like a lottery. Like they have no idea the... X amount of years and time I'd put into playing and, you know, the work that goes into it, right, as you play poker. Poker is not really, it's not even big in Nigeria at all. Maybe there might be some few poker rooms, um, but it's, a lot of people see it as gambling and it's a little reckless and all that stuff. So I don't know, maybe I'll help change some people's uh, mindset about that. You um, tweeted recently that you got an invitation to some sort of reality show or TV program where they were inviting lotto winners to talk about how they leveraged their big <laughs> victory into the house of their dreams. Yes. How did you get on that list? <laughs> I have no idea. It was just random. I got a, a letter and it was, I showed my wife and, you know, we're like laughing about it and we're like, maybe we should go. I don't know. Somebody mentioned, oh, I think in the chat, someone said, oh, this this poker player too that won you know some money and he ended up going on the show i think it's it's a mistake for people to think poker is a lottery or i just don't want to be part of that mindset you know i feel like you know we work for for the game right you know you study and then you have i'm gonna go play hard rock 
in like a couple of days. You know, I've been studying a lot over that. Like, you know, like, so if something good happens now, should I just attribute all of that to like, oh, look, I just scratched off 10 numbers. <laughs> but it, it was kind of interesting that uh, many people perceive it as something like that. How have you changed your approach to poker tournaments since your big victory? Have you been upping your buy-ins? Have you hired a coach or worked out a different training program? What has changed since the big 50 win? Uh, I'm trying to figure out, you know, where I need to change. And one thing I've, I've started doing is I'm trying to give myself more chances of winning, right? So I'm last year, particularly, I started playing some main events. Like the WPTs, I played, you know, a few of the ones I can go to. So obviously, I played a little more higher binds, and I played a few more other tournaments. In terms of uh, strategy-wise, I keep studying, as I've always done, and I contemplate about changing my strategy a little bit because um, right now when I play, I get a little more action than probably I would normally get. So I, I just need to kind of balance up my game and stay up with the trend. But I still meet with like friends and we go over hands. That helps a lot. I didn't hire any coach one-on-one. I just think there's a lot of resources out there to uh, to keep improving on. Yeah, absolutely. And when you said that you get more action than most people, is that because of the big 50 win? Why is that? Right. So it's uh, So for instance, I could walking into a tournament before now and just basically fold like 20 hands and then i decide i'm gonna bluff this in and i'm gonna put a barrel i'm gonna bend and i'm gonna jam the river right something i got away with easily right any table i get to you get a conversation about that and it just means you're a little you're no longer anonymous and now people have an expectation of you that you're capable of like maybe putting a creative bluff there you know <laughs> One guy was like, I'm going to call you because I want to be the guy that knocks out the guy that won the big 50 and he calls. I mean, his, his hand was a decent hand, but it's almost as if there's an extra extra incentive. Or if you look at it a different way, it just means that, okay, this guy might at least know what he's doing a little bit. So it means it probably bluffs more than an average guy that's tight, that looks tight. So that's kind of what I'm saying, yeah. Right. And they probably assume that you can rebuy also. So there's that as well. But exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, going back to the hand, I, I recently had a home game where a creative director and me in Philly, his name is Evan Young, and some of my poker friends and chess friends came over. And we played with these like special cards, where in addition to playing a game, just a, a cash game, we also had these challenges that you would win like a bonus from every player, kind of similar to the seven deuce game, but we weren't only playing the seven deuce game. And one of those cards was the double check raise. So you would win the bonus jackpot in the center of the table if you got a double check raise in and won the hand. And so when I saw this hand history, I couldn't help but think that it's actually pretty rare to see the double check raise at most tournaments, right? I mean, even at the professional level, it's not going to happen that often, right? The double check race is actually um, brilliant if you think about it. Any line that is usually uncommon uh, tends to be very good because there are two things that are involved. Your opponent wouldn't really know how to react in that spot because they haven't seen it a lot. So you have a higher chance that they're going to play wrong, right? It just so happened that my hand was kind of super strong there and it's kind of would be insane to fold. Otherwise, the double check would 
raise would have worked. I didn't like the turn check raise again because at this point, you should be doing that mostly for value ex- unless it's just super deep. If he's super deep, then it's a good play, right? Because if he has like 70 big blinds and he's not at the risk of busting out in the tournaments, then you can kind of be creative. And if you put a double check raise on the turn, then you, even if I call, you can just jam the river. That's if our stacks was deeper. So, But yeah, it's pretty interesting, um, the double check raise there. I mean, just in general, like kind of thinking about adding that to your arsenal sometimes and preparing for yeah. it as well so that you're not taken off guard, making sure that you're studying those types of more exotic lines. And that's yeah. why we put it into our, our game. But the problem was it was hard to get it in because, you know, it required a very specific situation where you would check to them again on the turn and then they would bet. And then the other issue was that everybody knew that that card existed. So that challenge card existed. So you already knew that there was a chance your opponent would double check raise in a spot that they would normally do a different line for value. It added this like completely interesting leveling situation, which I thought would um, appeal to you. You know, that's not a line that really comes up that often. And maybe there's good reasons for that. But maybe, you know, people should be looking and searching for more creativity in different situations. So yeah. the, the one I also like and slightly different is um, if you're out of position and you know, you open and somebody flats you. A lot of times, um, you know, maybe you decide seabed. It doesn't even matter, you know, the flop comes, whatever. Maybe you seabed and you still have a good hand. And the turn, maybe a scary card come or whatever comes, and you check that turn, right? Even most of the time, the in-position player, maybe to protect his hand since you've shown a little weakness on checking the turn, would bet. A raise there is always another, is another play that you don't see too much because they expect that if your hand is... Most players just expect that, okay, if you have a hand that you like, you're going to barrel on the turn or maybe you're going to check call just to pot control. So, But I also like the check raise on, on you know, like you barrel, sorry, you see bet and then you check raise to turn. That's kind of pretty solid, so I like it. Yeah, yeah, just kind of adding these different um, elements to your game rather than just play straightforwardly in the same kind of paths you do every day just like you wouldn't always take the same route to your work or your school but you would switch it up and i i think that that's something valuable to think about as we get caught up in routines yeah i think you know that's why poker will keep evolving and um the 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 interesting part is there's a lot of poker that people say oh that you know now you know you do this and that well some people have been doing that you know ahead of time you know and you might not go along with the theory of the moment but you know they just uh maybe like oversized bets plays like that it's now popular or it's getting more popular but there have been players that have been doing it um profitably because they've you know figured out this tendency for players to do xyz at this point people that think outside the box and if everyone keeps doing the same thing then how do you edge them out you know so Exactly. So Femi, um, just a couple more questions and I'll let you go. But I wanted to ask um, about your life outside poker, because you mentioned that you're very serious about poker, maybe getting even more serious since this W. Right. Um, but you're also a tech entrepreneur. So yeah, um, I basically I, I'm a tech, uh, I do consulting um, for companies that uh, maybe need uh, strategic uh, software solutions to be designed for them. I also um, have a couple of uh, startups that I bootstrap. I have a small team that, you know, we just build different apps and um, release it to the market. Um, right now, we're 
doing a lot of work in the healthcare space just to try to see if we can help with making healthcare more affordable. Obviously, there's a lot to that than just simply doing that, but that's kind of uh, what I've been working on lately. And for entrepreneurs in the poker space, where do you think they should be looking? Suppose you're a poker player or a gamer and you want to become an entrepreneur. Do you think that there's like some area that maybe they should keep their eye on? Oh, yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, I think on um, the poker space, there's still a lot of opportunities, poker particularly. There's like software that can improve um, players, um, maybe tracking tracking their tournaments. There's opportunities with helping the events run more smoothly. I've also explored some some opportunity in that aspect, but I'm just uh, right now working on one that I think it's more important. But I think um, as an entrepreneur, poker is actually perfect because you don't always have to be where you are, right, to do your business. And then you could totally be in Las Vegas and be a tech entrepreneur. And uh, if you have a team, you can have meetings with them and talk about things you need to do. And then you could jump into a tournament. So I think it's uh, it's a perfect situation for, I think all poker players should be entrepreneurs. You can use your resources to make more money for you by having something you do on the side. I think that's a really interesting point in that entrepreneur um, and poker player does go well together because even if you're doing like a small business, if the poker games aren't good, you have another way to make money. So that kind of idea of multiple income streams, very powerful for the poker pro. And just to add to that, you know when you have time to go play poker, right? You know that, okay, I'm going to miss this series because I have some release coming out and it's a ton of work. By the same time, you might get to a spot whereby you already have things in cruise control and then you just have a team. You could physically be elsewhere and then work. And then when you have free time, you go play poker. That's kind of what I mean. Exactly. It fits well together for sure. And I was a little surprised. I thought that there would be even more media attention for your victory. Yeah. You know, maybe what it was too was that it was so early in the tournament that there was so much other stories that had to come after it. I honestly think that could be what it was too, right? Because maybe if it was towards the end, I don't know. But yeah, I think the the position and the poker world, everyone's just trying to go play their own games, right? Like, because it's just starting. So maybe that could have played a factor too. And it was kind of good in the, in the way that you, you get out of the spotlight. It's, I mean, I think it's it's a good thing, especially when you get in the spotlight all of it so suddenly, right? You don't really know how to react to it. Like, literally, I'll be going to eat and somebody's like, hey, you know, I'm not used to, like, you know, I just basically go incognito, do my thing. And so I think when it subsided, maybe that was a good thing for me, you know, help me just go back to normal, right? For sure, for you, perhaps. But for me, it was surprising because, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a homogenous quality to the top poker players as a lot of them came up around the same time. So maybe early 30s, usually white, usually very based in like, you know, mathematics, oftentimes never had a real job, always played poker. So I think it's interesting that, you know, there's this opportunity to celebrate people who win these big tournaments. But I guess there's just so many tournaments that go on now. So maybe that's part of the reason as well. It's just a constant stream of new events, right? Yeah, it's a good point. You know, it's hard to really know exactly what the reason was. But at the end of the day, I think I agree with you that there's some opportunity that was lost in the victory as, you know, it could be something that could have been better off for maybe ad- advertising more to minorities and saying, look, there's an opportunity here. This is a game that 
anyone could put their heart into it and you know come out on top or whatever but at the same time too there was already you know the poker news and some of these guys did a great job in writing articles um i think the articles were mostly just talking about just um what happened how the the tournament itself happened and no one really kind of wrote into how you know that could add some kind of publicity or another dynamics to it uh, also given that i was the first um, nigerian born player to win uh, a bracelet uh, wsob contacted me then that if i wanted the flag that shows up because when i played the main event i also like cash in there but right now they kind of put the nigerian flag so which kind of helps too because like you know the news in nigeria some people might be like oh what's poker okay maybe we should stop playing it you know apparently some you can win it yeah i think it's a great opportunity i mean it continues as you continue to play poker and you might win more events i hope you will exactly that's so that's the the plan you know maybe i just need to you know try to play well and then maybe that will transcend and help you know, popularize the game too in places like in Nigeria where it's not really as um, popular. Especially as we get regulated poker in America and people can play at any buy-in. This idea that exactly. anyone can do it if they put the um, intelligence and the smart bankroll management to it as well. That's important, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that you don't have to come from a certain clique or, you know, start with a huge bankroll that you can kind of build it up. And you could start very late too, right? Like I did. I mean, I pretty much learned poker in like 2011. You're an immigrant, Nigerian, and you also started in your 30s as opposed to, or like late 20s as opposed to right. most people starting, um, you know, in college or something like that. Do you have any final advice to people who are listening and want to really make the most of the opportunities that they get in poker? Yeah, I think the same advice that I tell to myself is just stay hungry and stay humble it's very important to understand that the only thing that would stop anyone from doing well in poker is themselves if you can figure out the bankroll management and also incorporate a lot of studying to it and then just keep playing and staying healthy working out poker is a mind game so you have to pay a lot of attention to the mind right i think it's almost guaranteed to be profitable or successful obviously definition of success it's um all subjective right it, it depends on the person but my own definition of successful is um you're playing and you're profitable and you're, you're winning more than you've lost well thank you so much for joining us femi fashakin on king nine offsuit integral hand that helped him win the wsop big 50 thanks a lot jennifer it was great um being on your show and you can follow him at Femi T. Fash. Femi T. Fash on Twitter. So thanks again. King Nine Offsuit, Femi Fashakin. What a great story. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust They say I'm lucky Oh no, no need to bluff
All the cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent 